This episode of The Human Experience is brought to you by Dot Yoga. The internet is a rapidly evolving place. One of the recent changes that you may not be aware of are the new categories of domain names that allow individuals and industries a new choice in representing their presences online. Have you heard about Dot Yoga domains? Dot Yoga is exactly like a dot com domain, except they end in dot yoga. This gives yoga practitioners, meditators, and people who enjoy having a choice in the way their online identity is displayed a new and easy way to reference their online presence. Use your dot yoga domain for your website, your email. Set it up so that your fans can access your social media platforms through your dot yoga domain. It's short, easy to remember, and you yogis out there will have an instant connection between your services and the yoga community by getting your .yoga domain today. Get to www.getmy.yoga. Use code HXP2017 for 50% off. Don't be late to this party. Bring your web presence into harmony by upgrading to a dot yoga website and email address today. Welcome to the Human Experience Podcast, the only podcast designed to fuse your left and right brain hemispheres and feed it the most entertaining and mentally engaging topics on the planet. As we approach our ascent, please make sure your frontal, temporal and occipital lobes are in their full upright position. As you take your seat of consciousness, relax your senses and allow us to take you on a journey. We are the Intimate Strangers. Thank you for listening. I'm viewed sometimes as a very radical person because of the choices I've made in in that regard. Information becomes toxic, just like any other substance, just like I can kill you with water or with oxygen uh, or with squats or with human movement. I, I can kill you with any substance, with any prescription, with any medium. So why do you think information is different? Like human movement as a concept is not understood as a concept by most people. They they have other terms to define all kinds of human movements, but they do not treat those different actions, trends, disciplines under one umbrella. What's up, guys? You are listening to The Human Experience, and this is our episode with Mr. Ido Portal. If you have not heard about Ido Portal yet, you're going to love this episode. This was in my top 10 episodes of all time. I don't say that lightly. Ido has just this awareness of movement that I absolutely love, love, love. So, I'm sure that you will enjoy this episode. Thank you so much for listening. The Human Experiences in Session, my guest for today is Mr. Ido Portal. Ido, it's a pleasure, sir. Welcome to HXP. Thank you very much for having me. 
You know, so your profile has exploded and you're becoming more and more famous, I guess, to say. Can you just give us an idea of who you are for the people that don't know who you are yet, please? I'm a guy who is obsessed with the movement, movement as a concept, movement of the human body and movement of other things. And just eternally curious and try to unfold and unpack it and share the temporary discoveries with the the people around me. Yeah, I love that. How does a person get into becoming a movement specialist? I mean, you started with capoeira at a very young age, right? Not that young. I started around 15 with capoeira and before that, uh, Chinese traditional martial arts. Hmm. It's a question I asked myself uh, many times as well as I realized uh, my passion lies within movement. How do you uh, learn and study more about it? And it was all kind of scattered, and um, and it still is in many ways, scattered pieces of information from a variety of fields, each field using different terminology and uh, different hierarchies and different systems. And it took me a few decades to, to start to understand how little I understand. And um, that's, that's what I've been uh, doing. How do we understand the dynamics of a human body? How do we understand movement and our relationship to gravity? I think we understand it very well, actually, but um, maybe not on a conscious level. But our communication with gravity is really masterful. If you look at the, any person moving around, moving about, you can see that incredible uh, mastery of aligning the center of mass with the line of gravity. It starts in uh, the first few years of our lives, and uh, by, by the time we are uh, 10 years of age, even before that, we are really quite proficient at it. If we want to refine certain relationships, uh, whether it's with gravity or other forces around us, um, we can shed awareness on it uh, through uh, all kinds of practices, um, like somatic practices, for example, or within a specialized field, uh, some discipline, athletics or uh, martial arts or dance, and uh, kind of uh, enhance uh, our capabilities uh, more specifically. But uh, the general public is uh, masterful in its uh, connection with gravity in many ways. Even though people are not moving very well in comparison uh, with uh, traditional cultures or uh, with uh, elite athletes, mm -hmm. uh, they still can uh, perform some incredible feats in day-to-day -day lives, just living their lives. That's fascinating. You called it a communication with gravity. Is that what you said? It is a constant communication, yeah. It's a dialogue with gravity. Can you explain a little bit further? What do you, what do you mean by a communication with gravity? How are we communicating with the gravity? You are constantly refining your, your position, your relationship with the gravity line. It, it is not static, although most people um, don't feel anymore the, the very refined movements that occur as we speak. It's occurring to you, to me. Mm. And we are a sack of liquid uh, suspended by these contractions and relaxations. And we are constantly falling uh, and, and, and regaining our balance and falling and regaining our balance. And this whole thing is occurring on this 
yeah, big rock spinning around and there, there is other forces also operating on us, not just gravity, like Coriolis effect and other forces. And we are um, often not sensing them very well, just like the fish cannot see the water, as uh, the popular analogy goes. And then when we need to refine that connection, we need to kind of disrupt this um, unconscious proficiency. We kind of stop the whole process and sometimes uh, really disrupt uh, some basic uh, functions in order to refine. And then we have to put the whole thing together and go back into this unconscious blissful awareness and proficiency. Yeah. I love the way that you talk about this and the words that you use to explain what we're doing as we move and our communication with gravity, as you say. So you're obsessed with this movement principle, this idea of that we are moving constantly. You studied capoeira and then you set off to find teachers, find people who could show you more, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. I was always uh, looking for teachers, even within capoeira or martial arts. I was always uh, valued the experience, the collective knowledge, and and also the emotional connection to a teacher. This is something very dear and very close to me. Hmm. Okay, so who was someone that you found that was one of the most interesting, someone that occurs to you immediately without thinking? I have a lot of big influences. Uh, my first influence by far is my mother, who is uh, still very influential on me and is one of my teachers. And I've had also the honor and the, uh, the pleasure to, to teach her some things as well uh, later on. And then my first uh, martial arts teacher, Udi Ranan, who for many, many years uh, was a major figure of inspiration and, and influenced me as a, as a young kid, and later my first capoeira teacher, Paolo Caliman, another big influence, and then my second capoeira teacher, who is like a very, very influential figure on me, and um, Idan Arari, Master Idan Arari, um, all of them are uh, yeah, big figures uh, that have taught me, and on and on, and I can keep going. Uh, I, I've learned so much from so many people. Something I've seen you say is... You know, you gain inspiration from small children and watching children move. And I saw an interview that you did, and I saw it on the weekend. And I remember going and visiting my nephew. He's like two or three years old. And after I saw you speak about that, I, I was watching him and his movement. And he's, he's, he's so active. He's always running around and jumping and playing. And I noticed his parents tend to tell him to stop doing that. And we get told not to move in certain ways as we grow older. Is this something that you find accurate? Yeah, yeah, 100%. We try to control all kinds of uh, factors and, and the risk. And we've designed our lives uh, around the concept of staying alive. <laughs> And it, be, it has become very easy in many ways. And part of it was to stop all kinds of moving parts, moving parts that can create problems in the system. And uh, in the scenario of a family, uh, very often the moving part is the child. Mm. That, that's where the machine can, <laughs> can produce some problems. So often you hear the, the fatigued and calcified parents uh, kind of instruct, you know, 
perfectly intuitive and mobile, warm, capable body from moving. Uh, just from lack of education, of course, um, these are people who uh, view their child uh, as the most important thing to them, but they're just not, not always aware how important it is to move, to move a lot. As a child, and of course, later on as well, that's a major problem. Hmm. So, you know, what can we do as adults to start to move more with our bodies and communicate better with, with gravity? Not sure why you put so much focus on that connection with gravity, <laughs> okay. as the, the connection with gravity is maybe romantic for some people. <laughs> I don't view it the connection to gravity is a major source of movement problems. Oh, okay. Okay. But very similar to breath teachers, teachers who teach breathing uh, these days, uh, I don't view it as, as actually a good starting point uh, for the process. Uh, my father, who is, uh, be, will become 70 uh, this year, he never learned how to breathe from anyone. <laughs> He, he, he went through his life very capable and uh, he's still uh, operating very well, actively moving around. He never received instruction on how to breathe, nor how to communicate with gravity. Right. But there are definitely other concepts um, that are very important for us. I usually start people on some very, very basic um, folding and unfolding of the human body. Mm -hmm. And, and this is, a, I think, a, is a major issue. People simply do not move in a full range of motion. And their daily life are spent around some uh, in-between position, which is mostly sitting these days. Sitting, standing, and lying down. These are the three positions that uh, most people spend their life in. Mm -hmm. uh, I start people with some uh, squatting, j just a... Uh, not squatting for reps and, and for strength training, but just kind of folding the body down and resting in a deep knee bend, as many traditional cultures um, are using as a resting position, as often as a working position. And then um, another thing that I do is I like to start people with hanging, hanging from a suspension uh, point. Mm -hmm. And that allows them to use gravity as that aligning force to open the structure since our daily lives are spent uh, below eye level somewhere in front of you and slightly below people don't really use their arms overhead and that creates a host of problems from you know shoulder problems and and spine issues etc cetera, etc cetera. so these two things are something that i recommend people would start with uh, hanging just relaxed hanging from a bar spending some time there um, and then squatting in a resting position. Some people cannot even start with that and they need some regressions, but that's a, a, a kind of a, a main direction of development. Hmm, okay, so, you know, just for anyone who's curious and, and listening to us now, how long should a person spend hanging if they're beginning, if they're starting out? What I found very efficient would be to take a project, uh, usually a period of a month, 30 days, and uh, take one of those things and kind of really drill it. And uh, in terms of hanging, I recommend people to hang a total of seven minutes a day for 30 days. 
And that seven minutes is divided into many, many small sections throughout the day of maybe 30 seconds, 45 seconds, or a minute. And it can be even a partial hang where still the feet are lightly touching the floor or supporting some weight. It can be from rings or from a bar or from any suspension point, even um, hanging, uh, putting your hands above your door and just kind of relaxing down. Just just like a cat stretches Mm -hmm. and just getting into the habit of passing through this position. Uh, And uh, of course, I recommend them to get an anchor point, a suspension point available to them. Some of my students install it in their office or their house. And when it's there and you pass by it, it's much easier to start to apply. Uh, the squat is easier usually for people. They can uh, spend a little bit more time with it. And that recommend usually uh, 30 minutes a day for 30 days. And that is done through sections of a minute, two, three, up to five minutes at a time. And you do it while speaking on the phone, while waiting for the tram or in front of the TV at night or just throughout the day, just kind of folding the structure. When you start, it's a little bit hard, but after a week, usually most people get into it. Then the benefits just take over and then it's easy to continue. Hmm. Um, And the benefits are just immense. I've received, uh, without exaggeration, thousands of thank you letters thousands and thousands it's like the two challenges combined they had more than 30,000 people participate from around the world and it's nothing new it's nothing that i invented it was just something that i brought to the awareness of the public once more repackaged and brought it again into the the trend somehow but i yeah i needed to do a lot of tricks, a lot of backflips in order to get people's attention to do those uh, simple tasks. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. You've worked with many different students from many different cultures. And and I know that you travel quite often. You do many of these movement sort of workshops where you invite people to come and, and train with you. Is there a problem that you see most often with the students that you teach struggling with? Yeah, I think there is a major problem. It's not so so much of a physical problem, um, but it's a more of a conceptual problem. Like human movement as a concept is not understood as a concept by most people. They they have other terms to define all kinds of human movements, but they do not treat those different actions, trends, disciplines under one umbrella. That's a major problem where uh, things that you do with your body dynamically uh, or otherwise, because there is no other thing. We are, we are temporal beings. We, we live in time. So even a static position is actually extremely dynamic. Anything that you do falls under this umbrella. It can be w- uh, sitting now talking to you, um, my spine is uh, moving around, uh, uh, my shoulders are setting and resetting, I'm breathing, I'm swallowing, I'm creating sound by pushing air through vocal cords, mm-hmm. I'm blinking, uh, all of this is movement. And movement is also the yoga class that you took yesterday, and movement is also uh, fighting, and, and, and movement is swimming, and movement is uh, anything really. And and that as a concept, that's the most major problem. 
that it's still not perceived that way. And hence, people have a hard time to make connections, cross connections, to study it, to embody it, and to be. And that's, that's why we are moving so poorly um, on the inside and on the outside. And because movement is the only state of being, there is nothing else in this reality as we know it. It is a moving one. Um, then we are suffering. Uh, that's another component of our suffering and um, maybe one of the most major ones. So I've seen you say that, you know, we suffer from, we have too much information. We're always like being bombarded with social media. We're on our computers. We're on our phones. How do you see this translating into movement? I mean, if, if someone is holding their phone, looking at their phone all day, how can we sort of unlearn this habit that we've picked up? That's a that's a very powerful question, and it's a very it's a very good one, and it's something that I've been tossing and turning in my head for many 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 years. I'm viewed sometimes as a very radical person because of the choices I've made in in that regard. I truly believe it is not anymore about acquisition of information, and the trend to acquire more information is misguided. And hence, I've put my faith into other mediums of operation. A concept that I use a lot is a, a bullshit detector. Um, a certain ability to discern pieces of information. And also, more importantly, the ability to understand where you cannot perform this action alone. You're not knowledgeable enough to acquire knowledge. So all you acquire is information. And this only leads to further confusion. You are polluting yourself. Mm. Information becomes toxic, just like any other substance, just like I can kill you with water mm. or with oxygen uh, or with squats or with human movement. I, I can kill you with any substance, with any prescription, with any medium. So why do you think information is different? Our explosion of free information, available information, and of course, we like to talk about internet and this explosion, etc. Mm -hmm. This creates a completely different needs in terms of how to be and how to become the person that you wish to become. Part of my focus has been to, to be very brave and strong in saying no to more information, in uh, not buying another book before I finish all the unread book on my bookshelf, right. not to take another workshop from another fed, from another person, and not to open my mind at times, because the mind, just like a parachute, when opened too much, will also not work. Right. There is a certain balance to strike. And that doesn't happen just from acquiring information. That requires action, a lot more action. That requires a bullshit detector. That requires to discern information and wisdom. Nice joke I heard recently from a friend, uh, John Kavanaugh, is a known figure in the world of MMA, mm -hmm. is a information is uh, knowing that a tomato is a fruit wisdom 
is not putting it in a in a fruit salad. <laughs> I, I I like it as a joke, and and I, I but I think it's not so much of a joke. But actually, this is this is the state of many people. They make a fruit salad with a tomato inside because their focus has been that this is a fruit. It's just a piece of information that further confused them. Mm. So th- this is a few thoughts about the process, and there is so much uh, to deny. There is so much to limit, uh, to to say no to. These words that are often uh, only are portrayed in a negative way actually are extremely positive as well. And they can produce a lot of positive trends in, in our lives. And this is um, where I find the need to bring back some of those uh, ways of, of conducting oneself. And of course, the, the simpletons, uh, the oversimplifiers will take this and would make it black and white and would or would use the word but i call them the but people uh, i i hope i i um, i make sense uh, for the intelligent crowd that can understand the how this is so much needed in these days mm-hmm. and of course it's not black and white in the right quantities in the right way yeah for sure i i love that so much I'm going to jump around a little bit just because I feel like the philosophy is as important as the, the actual practical understanding of actually doing it and learning about the, the movement and ways we can, we can move. You talk about becoming obsessed with what you're doing. You talk about upgrading your passion to obsession. How does a person convert you know, this sort of obsession into a passion? when they're learning about movement and, and, a, and a discipline? I can't uh, say I'm a good person to, to answer that question, and I don't like to, to speak when I'm not uh, feeling very confident about subjects. And the reason is that I've never had the need to convert my passion to obsession. <laughs> it, it simply was there, that state. This is something that... Uh, just kind of emanates from my my DNA, from my skin. Is what it's a, this endless curiosity, this uh, 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 unquenchable thirst uh, for understanding the things that I'm I love and passionate about. But one thing that I can I can provide is sometimes I see people holding back. I see people that are passionate about something. They realize that also balance is important, and and it's and it's so much it's so true uh, to strike that balance, and and they're kind of trying to strike the balance a little bit too early. Um, and I, I like very much uh, Bukowski's uh, point of view on it, and find something that you love and let it kill you. Mm. Um, but definitely, I think a, a very important thing that sometimes I see is a lot of people are being educated and being advised uh, to hold back. Yeah, to be balanced. And, and, and there is a lot uh, imbalance and it's very important thing. But I think um, without getting out of balance at times, to be in balance mm. all the time is, uh, can be very problematic. You know, I, I want to talk about this idea of play and incorporating playfulness into the things that we do every day. And this is something that you advocate a lot. You talk about 
playfulness and and becoming more playful how can we become more playful with the things that we we do yeah we need uh, we need to understand it as a concept and then we need to take that concept extremely seriously <laughs> which is a nice uh, nice little paradox because our life depends on it uh, we need to Play as if our life depend on it. That's a, that's a nice uh, phrase from uh, Frank Forensic. Another one is uh, um, to never leave the playground. This is something that needs to be understood. This is something that needs to be highlighted. We need to play and we will play. We shall play. We are the homo ludens. We are the playing human. That's the state of who we are. And it's interlaced into our evolution from a lot before human existence and homo sapiens. All animals play. You can even look at it on an subatomical level that particles play. And they, they are moving in, in a playful manner. Who are you to deny that, to stop that? Who are us to kill play in a setting like prison? or in a setting like work, or in a setting like family, or in a setting like military. This is something that should be actually embraced. And play is the way that we get strong. Play is the way that we develop our survival skills. Play is the way that we develop all skills. That's a, a very primary state of humans evolving. It is not the only thing. The reason is we have been transmitting knowledge. We've been passing on pieces of information, and that is also in the core of who we are. We are collecting information and we're passing it from father to son. And those techniques and ways and systems and habits are extremely powerful, and they are the other side. And together with play, you get the complete picture. I believe in the technical aspects and I believe in acquisition of skills by using knowledge of our teachers and, and their teachers, etc. But on the other hand, I believe in the need to create your own amalgam and the need to develop your own self-knowledge. And, and that is done through pr primary, through experience and play produces that experience. Everything you say is like poetic, man. I really love everything you're saying. I've seen you do this movement exercise where you're balancing a tennis ball on your fingers. It seems like such a simple idea just to hold a, a little ball on your fingers, but you know, it, it's also very complex, like after you've been doing it for more than five minutes or just a few minutes. So, I mean, this integration of using something so simple like a broomstick and letting it fall and then catching it, how do you come up with these different ideas? I mean, it's so simple, but so complicated as well. Sometimes it's uh, some people uh, look at those uh, drills and tests and skills and they view them as ingenious and it's, it's just so far from it. <laughs> there is really nothing new under the sun. A lot of these drills and skills have been used in cultures, in martial arts, in, in dance, in, um, in theater, in physical theater, in all kinds of uh, uh, athletics and team sports for a long time. We've been collecting this knowledge. And what I did is uh, I just shamelessly just uh, took 
from anyone and everyone and then played a lot with it myself practically i'm i'm a practitioner um, an obsessed practitioner and and by playing so much with these tasks i was able to find some nice twist to them my personal touch to them and then share them with people and have optimally those who are obsessed enough and devoted enough to develop their own versions and and ways to it that's the process there are a few modes a few principles and kind of fundamentals that are once you understand them you understand the nature of our communication with each other physically corporal communication or our communication with objects our communication with the floor our communication with the physical laws governing our existence our communication with our ideas and i've been devoting myself to research and understand these principles and because i uh, developed a certain understanding of those principles i'm able to produce from this basic understanding infinite amount of uh, combinations and and tasks and and drills and skills uh, which i've been doing for many years with my students but i'm frankly at a point where i don't view there is a need of another you know drill or skill specifically or a new invention or i view that as another type of wankery that goes on sometimes we need to go back to uh, often to like very very important basics and to practice them to really practice them and that's something that is also happening sometimes i see people becoming addicted uh, to the variation and the change um but uh, they should just get a slap in the ass and 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 go do some serious practice and that's very similar um in the field of meditation awareness uh, consciousness sometimes there is another trend or another way and another breathing exercise another mantra another shtick and people mm-hmm. just need to sit down and do it and 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 there is a point where we need to say just just do it you know we talked about the way that a, a child is moving do you think that there's an aspect of fearlessness that comes with a child's actions and also do you feel that there's a point at which adults face the same amount of fear but they back off you know because they've learned to be afraid they've learned to be constricted in their movement yes it's true that children uh, experience less fears there, there is always fear present fear is uh, is a preserving entity fear and pain are a very important f- input for us but it's definitely less inhibited by it um, in the young years which completely transforms the way that uh, we move and communicate and our abilities capabilities and also oftentimes why we get injured and stuck and plateau but when where everything around you warns you what else can you become than a, a fearful uh, entity and that that's our culture where we're constantly we live in fear there is all these standards all the time we're standardizing everything you're incapable of of uh, living your life we we've become uh, very soft we've become very afraid and that of course inhibits us and creates a lot of uh, problems for us 
What do you see happening physiologically when someone is showing a sign of when you're doing a, a, a hanging exercise and someone is afraid? What do you see happening with that person? Well, the, the reason, first, the focus shifted. And so instead of like uh, sensing what is actually occurring to you, you are now creating a narrative of what you believe is occurring to you. And that narrative becomes your reality. You're not open to see what is happening in your shoulder, in your back, to actually sense, to shift your awareness to these areas and see what, what actually occurs. Your focus is shifted, not from sensing, not from being aware, but uh, for constructing a narrative uh, full of uh, fear. And that later, if uh, allowed, would become your reality. That narrative is stronger than what actually happens. Uh, so uh, that's that's something very very common, and it's good that you gave that example. It's, a, it's even on a on a simple level like that. Somebody comes in is like have some shoulder issues. Uh, let's say maybe pinched his shoulders or uh, some some inflammation, and then you, you put him in a very soft hanging exercise, and you see that from the start there is a certain opinion that is there it's like this is not good for me and instead of uh, sensing what is occurring what is there it's just uh, blocking the whole process altogether and of course you can fight that and you can work with that and you can not allow that to take over etc that's a major problem by the way with a lot of our diagnostics we don't realize sometimes that diagnostics are a surefire way to guarantee that um, the the narrative starts concerning that specific issue. If uh, some spontaneous cancerous activity happens in the body and uh, you just go on into your life, the body oftentimes disappears, removes it, uh, able to fight through it, you'll never know. But if you go on a general checkup, and uh, something is there, sometimes that process alone would lead to, in some cases, your death. And of course, <laughs> I don't give a solution here. I just point at the problem. I don't want to present it as a black and white thing. Don't get diagnosed. That's, of course, it's not simple as that. Mm. And, and oftentimes, you would die without being diagnosed. So it's not a black and white thing. But there is a lot of power to the placebo effect. And the placebo effect works negatively, not just positively. Psychosomatic diseases are extremely powerful and they kill a lot of people all the time. Yeah, so that's the, the root of fear and how fear is extremely powerful influencer on us. I, I love that scene uh, from Apocalypto, from Mel Gibson's uh, movie Apocalypto on fear. The scene was the, in the start of the movie, they go out hunting and they meet these people. All of a sudden, they make this noise and they say, who is there? Come step out. And these people just appear and they just say, we just want to pass through and we are on our way. And, he, and they ask them, where are you going? And say, we, we are going to find a better future. And their eyes is just <laughs> full of fear and trauma, and you can see that something happened to those people. They have left their place and they are looking for 
a place where they can live. And then the scene ends and they, they exchange uh, gifts and they pass through. And then when the tribe goes back to the village, the father tells the son, don't tell the other people about the, these people that we've met. And uh, he doesn't seem to understand. And then he says, the worst thing that you can bring into our village is fear. It's worse than the actual occurrence. And then later on, mm. he's slaughtered in front of his son's eyes. And he just gives him this free one less mind. So even in that moment, like he will not experience fear. He would not have it. He can control just that. He cannot control what happens to him, but he can control the fact that he will not give in to fear. Uh, one of my favorite books uh, from Dune, and there is also a beautiful quote on fear there. You have to let it pass through you and you have to remain there. And then you would look at the path as it moved through you and out of you and only you shall remain. Only you shall remain there. So it's something that is very close to my heart, something that I'm researching a lot. I'm a very fearful person. And that's, that's my experience with myself. And I've been working very hard. And I based my life in my fears. I based my life in my difficulties, not in my strength. As many people think it is because other practitioners in my field and in, other, in, in many fields that I've been part of, like in martial arts, uh, in acrobatics, I worked as an acrobat on stage. These people are usually experiencing a little fear compared to other people. And hence, that's why they gravitate towards this profession where I'm on the, the other side. The truth is that I've, I'm experiencing a lot of fear compared to others. And I've always seen it. I've always compared myself with other practitioners. And I based myself in the need to not give in to that and to pass through that and only I shall remain. And that's something that, uh, that I'm still day in and day out working on and fighting through. This strikes such a chord within me because something I was thinking on was, you know, I am my biggest opponent. And, you know, I am the biggest judge of my own character and who I am, what I'm doing. And what I've found is my own inner dialogue is so harsh, worse than anyone would ever say to me, like a you know loved one or someone who cares, someone who's trying to give me advice, you know, like if I externalize this internal voice of, you know, like, why the, why the fuck did you do that? Like, you know, that, that is the thinking. If I make a mistake or if there's something wrong that I'm trying to correct, I'm like, you know, I'm so hard on myself and I realize, you know, the, the biggest opponent that we have is when you look in a mirror and you see yourself, that's your biggest opponent is yourself. How do we start to understand this better? Well, uh, first, you, you've covered a lot of road by realizing it, even once in one's life, just that realization, even once. And that's already a major milestone. And then there is a need of a constant reminder. Because uh, the dynamics are such that you will focus elsewhere by the needs of reality around you. You're living your life. So hence, a small reminder for a certain period of time is needed. And once you've done that second stage of a, a consistent reminder, the third would be to change the behavior, to change the knee-jerk reaction. Usually, it happens already from 
stage number two. By realizing something, you immediately disrupt the process. So for example, uh, I drove today with my bicycle and uh, somebody wanted to cut in front of me and uh, with a car and then uh, dared to kind of honk at me. And, and I immediately, my knee-jerk reaction was getting, I got angry. But the thing is, sometimes I immediately realize, oh, now you're going to get angry. And by having that fraction of a thought before or as I get angry, it almost immediately undoes the thing. And there is just an aftertaste of the anger. It's very different than the anger itself. There is some sensitivity needed to sense the difference. And this is the start of the process, the start of the change, the way that we change things. So, for example, you fail, you disappoint yourself, your knee-jerk reaction is like, why the fuck did you do that? But by inserting another thought of like, oh, now you are going to be disappointed in yourself. Now you're going to be harsh on yourself. That already starts the process, but there is a need to do that again and again and again. And there is a certain period of time where you need to keep your focus on that process. Enough days should be accumulated. With many things, it's not as long as we think. It's sometimes one month of playing that game. But this one month, most people never go through. And hence, they're always at mercy of their current makeup, current instinctual and egotistical state. And they find it very hard to create changes. But change is actually rather easy to do once you understand the mechanics of it. There is a lot of work uh, that's, that's done on this subject. My mother introduced me to, to a lot of uh, very potent strategies there. She's, she, she is a big believer in narrative uh, therapy and, and the working with this narrative, this story that we tell ourselves. And that's exactly what you're, what you're describing is uh, that narrative, that negative narrative that you have uh, with yourself. That is an ever dynamic thing. You can always change that. It's just it takes work. And it takes a decision, like, I've had enough, and I'm going to focus here. So many questions here. And we have some, some questions from uh, some listeners. I, I wanted to ask you about something that's on your wall in your studio in Tel Aviv. It has written um, isolation, and then there's an arrow, integration, and then to improvisation. What, what does this mean? It's a concept that I developed many years ago. A few decades ago, really, it was first a very crude concept. And then later on, when sharing online became another mode of um, my teaching, I uh, really kind of um, put it out there. And I call it the road to mastery, to mastery anything, mastering ourselves, mastering everything, mastering any discipline, any skill. Improvisation is also synonymous with the word life. Living life is an improvisational capacity. We are improvising. That's the next word that comes out of my mouth right now. I don't know what it is. It just erupts out. I'm improvising. I'm, I'm actually a perfectly capable machinery that improvises in reality. That's what we are. And hence, that's where we want to go with pretty much everything, playing the violin, boxing, growing children, anything. But then 
there is also a need to resolve problems, change traits, uh, harness and, and, and modify starter packs, knee-jerk reactions, instincts, reflexes, absorb techniques, become techniques and apply techniques that have been passed to us from prior generations. And that's done through the process of isolating these specific moments or, or tasks or techniques or systems, uh, and then integrating them into bigger, from atoms into molecules, into bigger sections, bigger sequences. And finally, the whole thing should ar arrive at improvisation. And that's what I try to teach my students. Everything that we do is like go through this pipeline. I always, my eye is on improvisation, but I am often shifting into isolation or integration in order to not just rely on the act of play and you'll get better. Yeah, you'll get better, but you will never even scratch the surface of how much you can discover. It's not about being good or not good, but it's more about the discovery and the complexity. If you wish to increase your complexity, you have to use also isolation and integration and not just improvisation. And that, that's, mm -hmm. that's the, the idea behind uh, how I teach. And that's a concept that I uh, created and shared and, and used with my students. But it's also, I think, uh, has been around in many ways and understood by many people. I never heard it in this way, but uh, I think people have been acting upon these great teachers uh, for a long time, intuitively or maybe with different words. So you mean that when you're in the, this idea of playing, then you're, you're taking a moment to integrate the things that you've learned and not just yes, playing I, for I, the sake I, of playing? First, I don't always engage in play. Sometimes I need to drill. I need to stop, isolate the problem, drill it, and then go back into the improvisation, which play is one mode of improvisation. It's not always about improvising in a jazz concert as the moment unfolds. There comes a moment where you go back home and you practice the most basic notes cleaning them up, and then specific uh, letters and, and sequences and, and melodies uh, uh, in order to support your improvisation. You don't just improvise. Sure, you don't yeah. just improvise. Well, you can, as many try to do, but I, I believe it is not going very far in terms of complexity, discovery, and being. And, and it has been... Uh, misleading people sometimes i see messages about you don't need to isolate you don't need just be just just improvise just play nobody needs teachers we don't need anything well hmm. i think it comes from people without skin in the game and i think it it is i think it is not a very powerful mode of increasing one's complexity and i think and i know the results are very poor in my eyes. And I think that there is not, a, hmm. not much um, accountability there. And that's why you can make such claims by people who are, they just uh, want uh, to release you, to free you. It, it's because it's very anti-totalitarian thing. It's releasing people. You don't need anyone. Just play, just be. So I believe in the mode of play, in the need of it. 
in the need to improvise. But I also believe you should step out of the flow state. You should step out of the, the playful mode in order to improve the system. It's not just about driving all the time. Sometimes you need to put the gas in the, in the car. Sometimes you need to uh, fix the car, change the tires. And these are modes of our being that are maybe they're not as uh, sexy, not as uh, inspiring, but extremely important. You know, I wanted to ask you, I, I know you've been asked this many times, so I, I wanted to just briefly ask you about uh, Conor McGregor. Now, I know you've been his movement coach since uh, 2015 or so. Recently, he had the fight with Floyd Mayweather. Why, in your opinion, did he lose? Why would anyone lose to, to a person who has been perfecting their skills in a specific discipline for their whole lives? for uh, 35 years and you step into that game and uh, challenge yourself to an impossible uh, or close to impossible task. And I think it's very obvious. Uh, it was a monumentous uh, task. And, and, and I think Connor is a person that challenges himself, pushes himself and, and with full belief in himself. But uh, there is something to be said also for the size of the task and, and, and the ability to perform it. Hmm. Okay, fair enough. Ido, we've got a couple questions from some listeners. Michael asks, uh, what activities or exercises do you recommend to increase general agility and speed? I have a lot of trouble with... Uh, I, I'm, I'm a very pragmatic person and I'm a very accurate person. It sounds very positive, but it has a lot of also negative connotations. Yes, yeah? so I don't want to present it as, as such. But my problem with such questions is that the terms being used like agility the, and, and, and dexterity, things like that, they mean shit. They, they, these words have been abused and, and, and used by so many people in so many different ways that I have no fucking idea what the listener asking me means um, do you want to run faster and you call the action of moving your feet um, very quickly in between obstacles agility or is it uh, catching a falling uh, cup of coffee uh, that you call agility or is it um, or is it something else it's it's i don't i don't want to contribute to the, to the misinformation when I answer something, I answer out of a place of uh, understanding, and that's very important to me. I don't want to bullshit uh, the listener or to come up with some half-assed answer. Do this, do that. That's not who I am. Okay. I really appreciate the honesty there. Kathy asks, how do you keep your movement fresh? How do you keep learning more as you move forward? How are you increasing your knowledge? In, in regards to movement? It's very simple. I, I don't get good at anything that I do. Um, I'm, I'm a beginner every week. That's, that's how I acquired the skill set uh, that I acquired, and that's how I continue to acquire more. I actually am very poor at any specific skill that I can perform. Uh, maybe some people uh, will not realize it. Like, for example, they would see me do a one-arm handstand and they would ask, this is poor? Well, compared to elite practitioners, it is poor. Anything that I do is just on an okay level. 
I have an understanding of it. I can perform it. Um, but then I can do many, many such things. I can uh, orient myself in all kinds of disciplines and fields and, and just be mediocre or, or, or even sometimes below or sometimes a little bit above, but uh, never really go to excellence. And by making that choice, I'm able to every week learn new skills and acquire new skills. I'm the jack of all trades and master of none. Um, but being that, I've mastered being the jack of all trades. <laughs> and, that, and that's the other side of the <laughs> sentence where uh, they forgot it uh, when they, they coined the phrase. Jack of all trades is a master of being a jack of all trades. He's not the master of none. That's where I put my, okay. my focus on and that's what I enjoy. I, I love that. And I'm fully aware um, of the, the, the pros and the cons and I continue to make that choice on a daily basis. Yeah, you know, I'd really like to just close with how can we bring the mind into more integration, more connectedness with, with the body? This is why we have mindfulness practices and like these meditation classes that people are teaching. It, it seems we're very disconnected from ourselves. We do all these things. And can you, can you talk on that a little bit, please? I think uh, what is valuable and what I try to provide to many of my students uh, through moments that cannot be verbalized inside. That's something that I, I do a lot with people. I just put them in, in scenarios, in environments where verbalization, the internal monologue that goes on, or a dialogue, if you want to call it, it goes silent. It has no use because those moments are too fast or too scary or too embodying and too powerful to use your words. And then what comes around is sensations, emotions, much more primal sets of uh, internal experience. And that starts to connect us back to our movement and, and to our experience of uh, this magnificent tool, a tool of mass construction, as my good friend uh, Rasmus Olmec uh, calls it. The body is not there to be understood, he says. It is there to be experienced. It is there to dive into. It is, it's a tool of mass construction. It's a weapon. Originally, the, this, this thing, it's a weapon. We need to survive. And life eats life. Life lives on life. So hence, we are actually a weapon. But we are doing it. And how do we destroy? By constructing ourselves, by increasing in complexity acquiring more symbols by accumulating the invisible loop that we are, um, as Hofstadter calls it. This thing is, should be respected. And the way that we experience our body has stopped, has somewhat disrupted this relationship. We are going very cerebral, but that's uh, ending very poorly for almost all of us. We are becoming more depressed, more disconnected. And the, the acquisition of information, the working within your cerebrum uh, doesn't work. It, it actually doesn't work. People, people need more things. Uh, we, just like we cannot stop eating, 
we can't stop moving. And that's so, so, so important. And then important for me to mention is the other side that movement is not a technology for pure awareness. Movement should be supported by an internal practice of stillness, or shall we say relative stillness, a meditative practice of sort. The reason is because it makes the internal dialogue less active and bubbles up to the level emotions and sensations, it is actually a technology of anti-meditation, not a technology of meditation as often portrayed by people with commercial interests. Like I'm going to do my one-arm handstand and sell my hand balancing workshops and tell you Hmm. I'm standing on one arm, one hand in the future, one hand in the past, and I'm here in the middle just being. That's that's total (laughs) dishonesty about the process of acquiring a one-arm handstand and doing a one-arm handstand. Because when I'm doing a one-arm handstand, I think about the grocery list. I think about whatever. And the reason that I can perform the one-arm handstand is because I reached such an automization of the process that I can actually drift off. So it's a technology of anti-meditation. The better you are at the skill, the further it moves you away from using that skill as a tool of awareness. That's why for thousands of and thousands of years, we've been using the act of sitting to meditate. The simplest, the most basic position. That's why a high percentage of all yoga positions are geared toward external rotation of the legs. Why, why don't we see so many positions and asanas geared towards internal rotation of the legs because it's it prepares you for one asana there is only one asana that meditation that sitting practice that that practice of quietness uh, should be instilled next to the movement practice the movement practice uh, which is very convenient for me to portray it as the ultimate um is should be supported by a no movement practice as well Wow, I, you know, it's such a pleasure to to listen to you speak about these things, and you know, I, I truly appreciate you making the time for this interview and to spread this information, this knowledge. Where can people find your work? Where can people get to your website? Is there like a YouTube channel that you guys have started, or where are you going to be next for your next uh, workshop? Just put my name on Google. These days, it's ridiculous. Sometimes people ask you for, but it's just Ido Portal, I-D-O-P-O-R-T-A-L. You'll find it, I'm sure. No need to mention any websites or whatever. And if you are truly interested in what I have to offer, I'm sure you have uh, all uh, that you need to find us and communicate with us. And um, if we can help and assist in the journey, it would be a, a great pleasure. Love it, man. Uh, Ido, hang tight for me. Let me just do this close. I just want to talk to you for a couple minutes. Guys, you've been listening to The Human Experience. My name is Xavier Katana. My guest, Ido Portal, just a fascinating interview. Thank you guys so much for listening. I've got a flight to catch. I'm going to get out of here, but we will see you next week.